Good morning. That was wonderful. Just as a reminder, any children that are still in the service, it, it is time to go to Children's Church now. Today's reading is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And his heart, that his heart may not be lifted up against his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This has already been a full service. Well, before we dig into this text, let's, uh, let's take a moment to go to our God in prayer. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, this morning we thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, we ask that your spirit... Uh, would move in our hearts, that he would help us to hear from you, that he would point us to Jesus, our true king. So God, we ask that you would descend, that you would move, that you would awaken us, help us to behold Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, Katie and I, uh, my wife Katie and I, uh, grew up in Ventura, which is about two hours north of here, and we started dating when we were children. Uh, we were in high school, and we spent a lot of our dating life going up to Santa Barbara. Ventura wasn't, like, super exciting, so we, we went up there a fair amount, and I spent all of my money in Santa Barbara, but it worked. I got the girl, so it's all good. <laughs> But Santa Barbara has always had a special place in our hearts as a result, and so we still go up there quite a bit. Um, and it's impossible to get from here or from Ventura to Santa Barbara without passing through a quaint little city on the way. It's a city called Montecito. It's beautiful. It's filled with gajillionaires. And uh, there's a particular couple who lives there now. They've now made their residence there, also gajillionaires. And they've been getting a lot of attention lately. 
Some of you may know who I'm talking about. Any takers? Yeah, I heard it. Harry and Megan. Harry and Megan. Um, now, they have been getting, again, quite a bit of attention. Um, Harry's recent book broke multiple sales records and has become, according to the Guinness Book of Records, the fastest selling nonfiction book in history. It sold 1.43 million copies on its first day of release in the US, Canada, and the UK. Um, the couple also signed back in 2020 a five-year, $100 million deal with Netflix to produce content of various forms. Um, now, why is it that we are interested in Harry and Meghan? Well, the short answer is they're royalty, or they were. I, I don't really know, and, and it's okay. You don't, need to fill, you don't need to fill me in on the details. But we are fascinated with them because of their position. And I think it's so interesting that even in a country like the U.S., whose origin story is rooted in a rejection of the monarchy, we are eating this stuff up. And I think it points to this, this reality that even though we may desire, we may claim to desire autonomy, we may claim to desire self-rule. In our hearts, I think we really want a ruler. We really want a king because at the end of the day, we were made to live under a king, just not an earthly one. Well, in our text this morning, we are jumping forward to the book of Deuteronomy where God, through Moses, is looking ahead to the day when the people of Israel would be established in the land and he anticipates that once they get there, they would begin to look around and see what the other nations are doing, and that they would one day say, you know, I think we should have a king, just like the surrounding nations. And God indicates here that he'll allow it. But as the leader of the people of God, their king had to live up to certain very important requirements. So we're going to look at this passage together, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, and we're going to break it up into three parts. First, we're going to look at God's standards for a king. Second, we're going to look at the kings that the people actually got. And third, we'll look at the true king. All right, so let's start with God's standards for a king. Now we're going to start by looking at verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15, which sets the stage. There we read, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you. All right, so for a while now, for the last several weeks, we have been in a series looking at, at various events in the life of Moses. We spent most of our time in the book of Exodus because that's where we see most of you know, the significant events in Moses' life take place. Last week, we jumped forward to the book of Numbers, and today we are jumping forward yet again to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, and it is the last book of what's commonly called the Pentateuch or the Torah. All of these books were penned by Moses during Israel's wilderness wanderings. And the book of Deuteronomy is a collection of speech, speeches delivered by Moses to the people of Israel while they were on the precipice of the promised land. 
And in these speeches, Moses reviews the laws and regulations that God has given the people. And he's reminding the Israelites of the importance of following those laws. And that message is actually embedded within the name Deuteronomy. The, the name Deuteronomy comes from two Greek words, deuteros, which means second, and namos, which means law. So this is the second giving of the law. And as I've already mentioned, Moses is writing this book in the wilderness. But a lot of what he is writing is anticipatory. Right? He is looking forward to the day where they will no longer be on the precipice of the promised land, but they will actually get to enter into it. And he's reminding them of what life is meant to look like as they live out their call to be the people of God in the land that he has promised. And our text is another one of those anticipatory texts. See, God knows that when the people get established in the land, they're going to look around and say, who is our leader? Now, the correct answer is God. God was their leader. God was their king. But God knew that the people were going to want a human representative like all of the surrounding nations. And our text tells us that this was something that God was willing to permit. He says, you may indeed set a king over you. Now, this appears to be an act of concession on God's part. The Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says this, this section is permissive rather than prescriptive legislation. It does not command monarchy, but allows for it. See, this is one of those circumstances in which God feels like a parent. He knows what is best for the people of God, but his children have their own ideas. And so they are going to insist on learning things on their own. As I mentioned before, Katie and I started dating when we were children, and because of that, uh, I got to actually watch my in-laws, parents, Katie, and her little brother, Kyle, who's now 28, he's not little. Anyway, uh, but I got to watch uh, her, my, my, my in-laws actually function as parents, and there were times um, where her mother, who was super engaged and involved and loving and remained super engaged and involved and loving, would reach a point with her then-teenagers where she would realize there's only so much advice I can give, but they're going to go and do their own thing. And she, she had this line that she would, repeat, uh, from, uh, she, she would repeat from time to time where she would give her advice and then end up just kind of shrugging and saying, well, it's your life. That feels a little bit like what God is doing here. And when the time came when Israel actually established the monarchy, Samuel, who was the leader and judge at the time, objected strongly. But God told him in 1 Samuel 8, 7, and 9, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So why did the people want an earthly king? I think that's a question worth considering. Well, the same reason is listed in our text and in 1 Samuel 8. If you put those texts next to each other, in Deuteronomy 17, 14, we read, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And then in 1 Samuel, fast-forwarding, 1 Samuel 8, 5. Now a point for us, this is the people demanding of Samuel, a point for us, a king to judge us like all the nations 
They wanted to be like all of the nations that surrounded them, right? All of our friends are doing it. See, what they really wanted was access to the peace and security that would supposedly come from having a king of their own, a human representative like the other nations did. See, kings at that time would lead their people into battle, and they would be a source of strength for their nation. And the hope was they could also serve as a deterrent for invading armies. The people of Israel unfortunately failed to recognize that God himself was their security. But instead of arguing with them, God would allow them to learn the hard way. So he instructs Samuel again, Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. All right, so now let's look at the ways of the king according to God's standards. So we're going to jump back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 15 through 17 now. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now the first thing that is stated as a requirement for the king is that this king would be one of God's own choosing not the people's, which is a good thing. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Sadly, there is evidence to suggest that tall and attractive politicians actually do much better. Uh, Research has shown that taller individuals tend to be perceived as more authoritative and competent, Taller candidates may also be seen as more confident and better leaders, which makes them more appealing to voters. Similarly, studies have found that attractive candidates are more likely to be elected, due at least in part, I'm sure, to the fact that more attractive candidates get more screen time because apparently they're more enjoyable to look at, which gives them more influence and visibility. So God, perhaps knowing these tendencies within us, says, yeah, you you don't get to choose. I'm going to pick your leader. So the first thing stated is that the the leader would be one of God's own choosing. The second thing stated is that this king must be from among the people. Now, this doesn't mean that God isn't sovereign over other nations or that he doesn't love and care for the people of those nations. In fact, in the book of Jonah, we see God's care and concern even for Israel's enemies as he tells Jonah, and should should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God created everyone. He even created their cattle, and he cares for them all. So why this prohibition against foreign rulers? Well, for one thing, God had called Israel as his particular people, and he had a plan to work through them to make them a blessing to all nations. But another point to consider, again, a major reason for wanting a human king was stability and security. 
And smaller nations at the time that Moses was writing would often subject themselves to foreign kings of larger nations, right? paying tribute in exchange for security and protection. And God was, was in, in prohibiting a foreign king, is basically saying, no, 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 your security is not going to come from aligning yourself with someone else. Your security is going to come from me. So this king would be one of God's own choosing from among the people, and he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. All right, so we don't want to look at this text and juxtapose it with what I just read in Jonah and conclude God likes cattle, does not like horses. That's not what's going on. What's in mind here when God prohibits the acquiring of many horses is, is the building up of large military forces. Right? Horses and chariots at the time that Moses was writing were akin to tanks today. Right? This was the, the best that military technology had to offer. God would allow a human king, but he wouldn't allow the people to think that their safety was dependent on that king's military might. And why, named, why name Egypt here? Well, Egypt was a place where horses were obtained. There are records that go back to the Hyksos rulers well before the time of Moses that show this to be the case. And later in Israel's own history, Solomon obtained horses from Egypt, according to 1 Kings 10.28. But God says no. The people weren't to depend on military might, especially if it caused them to go back to the land of their captivity. So God said no to the building up of their military. And in verse 17, we have two more prohibitions. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. The prohibition against many wives served two purposes. One, God was shutting the door to foreign marriage treaties. A common way for kings to make peace at that time would be to take, uh, to take brides from surrounding nations. It was a way of building alliances. Right? And prohibiting this practice, God was again saying, your security is going to be found in me, not in your military or diplomatic prowess. But multiple wives also had the potential to cause someone's heart to turn away from God because the design from the very beginning was one husband and one wife. And the second prohibition of verse 17, something else that has the potential to turn a king's heart away, is excess wealth. Acquiring large amounts of wealth and desiring to do so bring with it many dangers. It can cause people to depend more on their ability than on God. This is why Jesus said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See, excess wealth can cause us to focus on maintaining the security that money can provide and neglect finding our security in God. So kings who get excessive in silver and gold can resist the idea that a God calls them, that their God calls them to submit to them, to depend on him with a sort of childlike trust. Wealth can give them a wrong sense of power and self-sufficiency. All right, so those are the, the things that the king should not be according to God. So what should they be? Well, let's look at verses 18 through 20. 
And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a, in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." See, God called Israel's kings to be men of his word, ones who would keep all the words of his law, who wouldn't turn aside from his commandments. And they were to be humble. They were to be men whose hearts were not haughty or lifted up. All right, so those were the standards that God established. So now let's briefly consider the kings that the people actually got. So I'd like for us to do a very brief summary of the Israelite monarchy. We've got 42 kings to get through. You guys aren't going anywhere, right? No, no we'll, we'll do it quickly. Um, we won't go through them all. We're just going to do a brief overview. But I would like for us to start with the first king, Saul. When we are first introduced to Saul, we learn that he is a handsome young man. There is not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he but not only was he handsome, he was also tall. See, that's all it takes. <laughs> From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Tall, handsome, what could go wrong? Well, when he was first called as king and meant to be presented to the people as such, we read that he, when he was sought, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. The brave king, right, the one who was meant to provide security and stability in the kingdom, where is he? Among the baggage, hiding, despite being taller than everyone else. This was problematic. But what was far more problematic was that as a king, Saul appeared to see God's word as something that was optional. And on more than one occasion, he directly disobeyed God. And as a result, the kingdom was ripped from his hands and placed in the hands of another. And that other was King David. And David is known, and rightly so, as the greatest king of Israel. He was a man, we're told, after God's own heart. He was a brave leader. He was a, a warrior. He was also a poet, someone who often stood for justice. But did he live up to God's standards? Absolutely not. See, David is, is I think, often first and foremost known for this story uh, in which he stood up for God and, and his people against the giant Goliath. We, we know that story. We tell that story to our children, a more sanitized version, most definitely. But I think one of the other, probably the other more famous, most famous story of David is of his affair with Bathsheba, who was a married woman. And as a result of that affair, she became pregnant. And David tried to handle that situation first by covering it up. See, her husband, Uriah, at the time of their affair, was off at war, where David should have been, 
In fact, the story begins with when, at the time when kings go off to war, David was in his home. David should have been there with his people, serving as their king. Instead, he was at home, lusting after other people's wives. So he called Uriah home from the battlefield, and his, his idea was, well, if Uriah goes home and sleeps with his wife, then people will think that the baby is his. But Uriah would have none of it. He refused to go into his house. In 2 Samuel eleven ten and 11, we read, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my, lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Well, that was inconvenient for David. And so he used his power and his authority for evil and had Uriah killed. Chaos then ensued and the whole kingdom was thrown into turmoil. Well, Bathsheba was just one of eight named wives of David. We're also told in 2 Samuel 5.13, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. See, David was guilty of putting his trust elsewhere, of of acquiring wives, of, of dealing in evil ways with his people. Additionally, he was also guilty of putting his trust in military might. In 1 Chronicles 21, 2, we read that David took a census of the people with the intention of figuring out how many fighting men he had. And on the surface, this doesn't look like it would be that big of a deal until we think about, again, the requirements that God places on his kings in Deuteronomy 17. And we, and we learn in 1 Chronicles 21.7 that the thing that David did displeased the Lord. So David, the greatest king in Israel, a man after God's own heart, failed miserably in many of these respects. Now, David also repented humbly. He, he did He did care deeply for the law of God and was broken when his very sins were brought to his attention. And I think there's a lot more that can be said about that. But when it comes to fulfilling the standards that God had set before him, David was not the hope of Israel. Well, unfortunately for the people of Israel... The the sins that we see present in David were exacerbated in the next king of Israel, his son, Solomon. See, I referenced earlier that Solomon acquired war horses from Egypt, the exact thing prohibited in the book of Deuteronomy. And he, according to 1 Kings 11.3, had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And what was the result of having a thousand wives? The exact thing that Deuteronomy said would happen. His heart was turned away from the Lord. And you might be wondering, was he wealthy? Yes, he was very wealthy. In 1 Kings 10, 14, we read, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. That's equivalent to, two, to 22 tons, like a billion dollars worth of gold. That's in one year. 
And, and the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. He acquired excessive gold and silver. And he put Israel on a dangerous trajectory. And after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took the throne. And when Rehoboam came to power, I know we're on King 4 of 42. I, I, we're we're going to move faster, I promise. When Rehoboam took the throne, the people of Israel begged Rehoboam to lift the burdens that Solomon had put on them. See, a person doesn't acquire that type of wealth without somebody working hard to accumulate it. And so they come before King Rehoboam and they say, please lift the burden that your father placed on us. And Rehoboam refused. And as a result, his kingdom split. So Israel became two kingdoms. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. There were 19 kings in Israel. Every single one of them, the Bible declares, were wicked. There were 20 kings in Judah. Eight of them, were told, were good, but 12 others were wicked. The people got what they wanted. They got a king, but he was a far cry from the true king. And the thing that we celebrate on Palm Sunday is the fact that our true king has come. Jesus is that king. He fulfilled every single requirement we see in these verses in Deuteronomy. He was the Messiah, the one chosen by God from among the people. He didn't amass an army. Instead, he told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He didn't collect horses and chariots. No, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he didn't come on a valiant steed. No, he came humble and mounted on a donkey. He didn't acquire wives. He was single his entire life. But he did uplift women every chance he got. Right, when he is touched by a woman with a bleeding condition out in the marketplace, which would have potentially made him ceremonially unclean, the expectation was that someone in Jesus' position would turn and rebuke her. Instead, he draws her out, and he gives her an opportunity to tell him the whole truth. And how does he respond to her? He calls her daughter, and he pronounces healing over her. When Jesus was at the house of a respectable Pharisee, we're told that a woman of the city who was a sinner, which is likely a euphemism for a prostitute, came and approached Jesus and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with, her hair, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. See, Jesus, knowing who she was, would have been expected to shun her, to distance himself from her immediately. But what does he do instead? He uplifts her. He holds her up as an example of love and faith. And do you know who Jesus' longest recorded conversation in the Bible is with? The woman at the well. Jesus loved, honored, and lavished his grace on women throughout his entire ministry, which is a far cry from the practice of the, of the kings of Israel. And it's a far cry from the practice of many of our current leaders. And did he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold? Nope. 
Jesus lived a humble existence his entire life and declared at one point to a would-be disciple, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's a great church growth strategy. You want to you come follow me? You're going to sleep on the ground. Why? Because Jesus knew that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The words that we have in Deuteronomy are perfectly embodied by Jesus. Jesus gives these words flesh and bone. He is the true king, the one that we have been longing for. So the question this morning is, who are you following? Who are you looking to for security and peace? Who are you allowing to define what is good and right, what is normal? The kings the rulers, the leaders of this world, at the end of the day, it is all the same story. Every human leader will leave us wanting, which is why God's word warns us, put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. May we instead resolve to put our trust in King Jesus and declare Hosanna to the son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we, we ask, we pray that you would help us to see King Jesus as the fulfillment of all of our longings. And Lord, we confess our tendency to place our faith, our hope, our trust in other leaders, in other things. We, we confess that we've looked elsewhere to find our peace and our security. But God, by your Spirit, we ask this morning that you would help us to behold the true King. God, help us to have the wisdom and the foresight to see Him as he is. May we look to him to define what is true and right, good and normal. Help us to place our faith in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.